Hello and welcome to season six of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy during season six. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media with your friends and family. And of course, give us a like and leave a review. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Sandy Richter. Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And I'm honored to have on the line today, Dr. Sandra Richter, who serves as a Robert Gundry Endowed Chair at Westmont College in California. Dr. Richter, welcome to Captain's Corner. It is great to be here, Andy. Thank you so much for the invitation. We, I, we just had a conversation, actually, and I'm not sure the timing of how they'll come out, with your husband, Dr. Steve Sukalis, who's been a, had a great impact yes. on my ministry, as have you, even though I never took a class with either of you, and we were running in similar circles for years. So um, you're at Asbury Theological Seminary, Wesley Biblical Seminary, Wheaton College, and now at Westmont. And uh, I think that you and your husband together are this power power couple of the Christian intellectual scene. So we just so appreciate the work that you've done, mm-hmm particularly like the Epic of Eden, your environmental work. So thank you for the contributions you've made to scholarship and the evangelical conversations. Oh, thank you so much, Andy. I, uh, you know, this is the goal, right? That we follow our calling and do our best to build the kingdom. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that's what we're up to. So now it's uh, great to be here. Absolutely. We're so glad to have you. The, um, you're, you're an Old Testament scholar and you've, you've mm-hmm. written several different books um, and, and you have several academic specializations, but one of them that has got kind of come to prominence lately, probably as a result of a, a really kind of like a, a, art, a article that you presented at the Evangelical Theological Society that's make, making waves in the academic community, kind of you're taking this position of being the, the person who answers the question, does the God of the Old Testament hate women? Uh, how do you feel about getting that, <laughs> that, that specialization? Um, first of all, that was a very fun paper to present. Um, for those in your audience, I, I don't know if they've heard of the Evangelical Theological Society. We're one of the, um, the big professional societies for biblical scholars. So, you know, a whole bunch of, of pasty-faced academics all get together and, and um, spar over our, our research. But this past year, they were doing uh, a, a, an emphasis uh, particularly on, um, I think it's Andy Stanley who made the big presentation. Oh, right. yeah, of, yeah. Let's get rid of the Old Testament and uh, we'll be much more effective as a faith community if we just sort of, uh, un- uh, his language literally was unhitch the New All Testament right. from the Old because it's so culturally irrelevant at this point in time. Right. And one of, one of his points was this business that the God of the Old Testament apparently hates women and therefore the church can never effectively reach a female audience if we hang on to the Old Testament. And of course, I'm sitting there as a woman, wife, a mother, and a scholar of Old Testament saying, really? Really? <laughs> I say, hitch me up. Don't unhitch me. Hitch me up. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, yeah. But I'd be curious, like one of the big challenges that we have is that the ancient Near East is so, di- and I am I, I I'm saying this to the person who knows it intimately, like, is so different from our world. It's hard mm-hmm. for us to grasp it. I mean, how can you help us? Can you help us just enter in to this different context in the way women are understood in that context? Mm. 
Yeah. And that you've tagged exactly the core image that what we're dealing with when we deal with the Old Testament is a cross-cultural experience. Yeah. And if there's anyone on the planet that knows how to deal with cross-cultural experiences, it's the army, right? Huh. Hey, this is what you do. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> yes, you do. And you do it better than just about any other wing of the church. Hmm. And uh, the army knows how to go out into the highways and byways and and find folks that the church often overlooks. And of course, we, as uh, the evangelical wing of the church, have this amazing history of missions and reaching out into contexts that no one else had even noticed. Now, we've messed it up more than once, mm -hmm. for sure, confused the gospel with our own ethnocentrism. But uh, generally, we recognize the necessity of cross-cultural communication when we do ministry. One of the things I hammer away at in my classes, uh, both with uh, laity, with undergrads, with grads, with doctoral students, with my colleagues, is entering into the Old Testament is entering a cross-cultural experience. Yes. So what's the first task when we do this as, as ministers? Our first task is to get to know the culture we're stepping into before we start proclaiming anything. Hmm. And certainly we don't step into somebody else's context and start screaming because they don't have a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, because they don't treat us in the same fashion that our home culture does. Right. So I'd say the biggest issue for us as students of the Old Testament is, is to start by recognizing our own ethnocentrism, our own um, immersement in our own culture and immersion in our own culture and to first get to know their culture. And it's getting to understand their culture that we can start uh, interpreting their law codes and asking questions about was that particular law code, that particular um, uh, cultural moray or life way, as an anthropologist would say it, are those things just or unjust? Hmm. So how can, like, what what was the status of women in that culture? You, I, I've picked up some things from your Epic of Eden that helped me with that a little bit, mm -hmm. the difference of patrilineal, pa patriarchal culture. But but could you explain that a little bit to us? Like, those, those yeah. terms might be unfamiliar to our audience. Well, and I would anticipate they probably are unfamiliar to your audience. So a little plug for that book, which is kind of my soul on paper, the whole first chapter, <laughs> of the Epic of Eden, um, the book that came out of IBP, uh, the whole first chapter is, let me introduce you to your people. So let, you know, let's do uh, a friendly dive into the culture of the ancient Near East. So the first thing people need to realize, American people. Okay. Now, when I, yeah, when I teach Kenyans, when I teach um, Koreans, first-generation Koreans or Japanese, they don't have this problem. Hmm. We do. Wow. <laughs> so um, as we step into the Old Testament, the first thing we need to realize is we're stepping into a tribal culture. Okay. And when I say tribal, I mean that the family stands at the absolute epicenter of this society. So it is the economic epicenter, it is the legal epicenter, and uh, family defines all of the rules of engagement. Now, American society is not tribal. We are a bureaucratic society, according to the anthropologists. 
which means the epicenter of our society is the state, Hmm. not the family, Hmm. of our families. And we invest deeply in our families. But our ability to get a job, to keep a job, and our safety net when we lose our job is not our family. It's the state. So our resumes don't list our family members. Our resumes list our education, our work experience, and our address and our our social media platform. Right. You know, that's what comes in our resumes. Whereas in a tribal culture, first of all, there would be no resumes, but if there was one, what would be listed would all have to do with your kinship circle. Uh, in Israel, it's going to be the bit of in the father's household. So who is your father? What is your gender? And what is your birth order? And that's going to determine your entire future. So if you're a firstborn male in a patriarchal tribal culture, your whole life is set up. Hmm. Uh, Your vocation, your level of inheritance, where you live and who you live with. Mm -hmm. And so in that mix, you'd ask me, where do women come in? So in Israel's tribal culture, which is a patriarchal tribal culture, there were matriarchal tribal cultures. Israel just wasn't one of them. Right. Uh, a woman is going to start off her life as uh, the child of her father. So her link to the economy, her link to the legal system is her father, her patriarch. Then she's going to be married. And that marriage is going to be decided by her father right. because it's a legal arrangement. And then she's going to become the wife of her husband. She's physically going to move into her father's family compound. Right. She's going to adopt his tribal identity and her children are going to be the children of his clan, not her biological family's Mm -hmm. clan. And if she's blessed, she will produce a male heir and that son will now be her link to the economy and to the legal system for the rest of her life. This is why in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are constantly hearing the leaders of our faith say take care of the widows hmm. and the orphans. Right. Because in that in that societal structure, a widow who was a true widow, in other words, she no longer had any link to her husband's clan, or an orphan who is a true orphan, his father and connection to his father's household, his bit of had been severed, they, uh, they are on the absolute margins of society. They have no link to the economy. They have no link to the legal system. They have no advocates. So a very different society. So one of the things you, I've heard you say before, and I think even back in seminary, is that th- th- this isn't God saying that this is the culture for all time. This is the way this culture, I mean, this is the golden culture. I mean, you have a lot, I have right. something about the way, you think I know, you know what I'm going to say, or you have a line yeah, on Yeah, I this. do. I, um, I talk about canonizing culture. Okay. And it's so as I started teaching this stuff, oh, goodness knows how long ago, because I started in ministry. So um, this, you know, this material has evolved over decades. So when I first started teaching this stuff, I had to remind um, primarily white churches that the American um, uh, dominant church culture was not Jesus culture. Right, right. <laughs> I had to remind my students not to canonize their own culture. Right. And I had to 
in them that they were stepping into a cross-cultural experience. And I had to teach them about what it looked like to step into somebody else's culture. Our society has changed so much that now I kind of have to go the other direction. And I have to remind us not to canonize biblical culture. Interesting. All cultures are a mixed bag of the good, the bad, the ugly. The gospel critiques everyone's mm. culture. Amen. And the critiques the biblical culture. But the issue is that our God is busy trying to reveal himself in real space and time. Amen. So I choose somebody's culture if he's going to reveal himself in real space and time. So he started with Abraham and he moved forward from there. And as a, an expert in these things, I can show you how Israel's culture actually evolves as they go from an unlanded people of pastoral nomads, that's a patriarchal period, till they became a landed tribal confederacy, that's the settlement era, till they became a monarchy under David that was still dominated by tribal sheikhs and leadership, until they became a fully bureaucratized monarchy about the days of Josiah, hmm. until they became a refugee population living in somebody else's culture, that would be the exile. Right. And then, of course, in the first century under Jesus, this is a Roman-occupied, empire-driven economy, and our people are a, provind a provincial backwater. Hmm. So there's a lot of culture in the biblical text. And, of course, our cultures are shifting left and right. Right. So we're not think anybody's culture. Right, right. What we're doing is to understand right. these biblical cultures so that we can understand God's communication of his own character in the midst of those cultures. This episode of Captain's Corner is sponsored by Arthur Alley Associated, your partner for fundraising and mission development. Led by longtime Salvation Army fundraisers Derek Alley and Steve Wakes Norris, Arthur Alley can help your nonprofit organization or church with services like mission planning, annual and capital campaign fundraising, and coaching. Arthur Alley has the experience and insight to help your organization thrive. They've worked with organizations across the country and specialize in serving the Salvation Army. And today, for Captain's Corner listeners, Arthur Alley is offering a free 20-minute consultation call. Brainstorm strategy, script an upcoming donor visit, talk through an advisory board issue, or ask questions you've been afraid to ask in public. It's entirely up to you. Visit ArthurAlley.com slash captain. That's Alley with two L's, ArthurAlley.com slash captain to set up your complimentary consultation call today. And so he communicates himself here, like particularly we think of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in that, mm -hmm. in that period, you've described, uh, and I'd love for you to explain this a little bit, for me, the, uh, that it was a subsistence economy. What does that mean? It was a subsistence yes. economy. Hmm. I love these questions, Andy. Oh. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Um, I've actually just, yeah, I've just put out two big technical articles that ate up about five years of my life Flesh. on reading the book of through an economic lens. Okay. Um, one's going to yeah, that's good. One's going to come out in Catholic Biblical Quarterly next month. I'm very excited about okay. that. The others in JSOT. Um, okay, so yeah. Five years into one five minute answer. So I'm sorry. Thank you for giving it a shot. That's okay. Yeah. Well, you have to train for the elevator response, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And as you talk about your dissertation, by the way, yeah. Um, that 
that's that's the first phase, the elevator response. So okay. So one of the things I do that apparently no one has ever done before is take the book of Deuteronomy as a legal code that outlines the lifestyle, life ways, social mores of Israel, and ask the question, hey, what uh, economic realities are built in to this document? Mm-hmm. The me that they are <clears throat> speaking to, you know, with all economies have to have laws and regulations, but also the economy they're assuming behind their laws and life ways. So in the book of Deuteronomy, which is this constitution and bylaws for the state of Israel, we get some really detailed uh, treatment of what type of economy Israel is living with for most of its existence. And certainly what the regular family living in the highlands during the iron age is experiencing. So a subsistence economy is an economy where everybody has basically just enough Mm. to survive. Mm. Anyone who has more than enough by definitions of the ancient world is wealthy. Think about that in an American economy. You know, you and I have got enough clothes tucked away in the closets of our households to uh, take care of an entire Israelite village. (laughs) And that's for a regular suburban household. We've got enough food in our pantry and in our freezer to uh, survive for several weeks if all of a sudden our economy collapsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Israelites, no, they have just enough. In fact, there's an Israeli archaeologist named Baruch Rosen who actually took the time estimate how many calories oh my goodness a standard age village needed to survive for a year talk about ocd right wow. <laughs> and, yeah i can't and imagine what, what you have to do to get that but yeah, keep going yeah it's interesting yeah well you can estimate based on architecture okay how many people are actually living in the village so now you get your population count You can estimate based on that population count and what you know about their economy, um, what's being produced where. Uh, There's going to be faunal remains in a standard village, which means bones, right? Mm -hmm. How many are getting slaughtered and how frequently they're getting slaughtered. Uh, You can look into storage facilities, both in private homes and if there are uh, silos in the village. So you can estimate how much food is going on and you can juxtapose that with population. Okay. And so he came up with an estimate. I think it's 15 million calories a year is the shortfall of an average Israelite village. In some of my uh, environmental work, I translated that into the average family. Okay. And because of mortality rates and lifespan, we can estimate that the average uh, couple uh, had two to three surviving children. Okay. That would be average. Think about that with Jacob and his 12 sure. sons. Interesting. So in light of that, we can estimate that the average family in Iron Age Israel, which is the monarchic period, is coming up 60 days a year short on their food supply. Wow. 60. Yeah. And an, an anthropologist would call that the hungry season. Okay. And if if you go to Papua, if you go to some of the far-flung villages in the Congo, 
um, hungry season is not a surprise to any anthropologist. Uh, any agricultural community is going to have a gap between when last year's harvest ran out and when next year's harvest comes to fruition. That gap is called the hungry season. And in Israel, we can predict it was about 60 days. Wow. As we read our Bibles and we read these legal codes, it is essential for us to realize that every family is counting every kilo of grain in their private. Every family is counting on every ewe in the flock, that's a female sheep, to produce. And if she produces twins or triplets, glory to God. Wow. If if wolf breaks in and takes out a breeding ram, it's a very big deal. Wow. Um, if a neighbor doesn't take care of your wandering ox, he's just wiped out your combine. Um, mm. the, it's These people are living right on the edge. And this actually is a nice segue into questions about women. Right. As we look at these families, these extended families that are living on the edge and relying on the village to stay alive, and villages run 200, 250 people. They're small, you know. When you look at your young men who have managed to, first of all, the mother survived the pregnancy. She survived the pregnancy. She gave birth to a healthy child that hopefully didn't bring about her own injury and death. You've managed to get that kid through the first five years of very high infant mortality. Hmm. You've invested tons of resources in food and time and energy to bring him to his young adulthood. So every expectation of the family is that that young man is going to now take his physical brawn and he's going to invest in the well-being of the family. He's going to be out in the fields harvesting. He's going to be up late making sure that the plow is repaired, that the ox is healthy. He's not going to laze off and forget to bring the animals in at night and cost the family um, 10 healthy sheep, right? Um, You've invested in that young man's muscle, and that young man's muscle needs to be uh, fed back into the family resources. Mm. So what is the number one crime? of a young man in uh, the book of Deuteronomy? And the answer is that he is a glutton and a drunkard and he refuses to work. Wow, yeah. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, if a young man refuses to work, if he's a glutton and um, a drunkard and he won't listen to his parents, the first step is that his parents bring him to the village elders, who are going to be his uncles, Mm -hmm. by the way. Those uncles are, and and the father are supposed to discipline him. If he refuses to submit to discipline, if he will not work, do you know what the penalty is? What's that? Have you ever read what I call the youth pastor law? (laughs) I'm afraid to answer. Go ahead. Tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The penalty is that they stone him to death. Wow. It's crazy, right? In our world. And we actually don't have evidence that they ever did this. Okay. But it's on the books. It's on the books. And as you've read the book of Proverbs, you know that there's this constant chorus of discipline him while he's young. Right. So that you don't have to discipline him when he's old, because the discipline when he's old is is mortal. It's it's capital. It's right. it's stoning. 
So that law is in Deuteronomy 21, and it is followed up with the capital crime for a young woman. So same gig, hmm. uh, the, uh, the to get through a pregnancy and a delivery alive. They have invested in this girl. They've trained her to cook, to clean, to grind grain, which takes two hours a day, by the way, to grind enough grain to feed a single family. Wow. Um, to produce textiles. It takes a hundred hours of labor to produce one suit of clothes in this economy. <clears throat> so she is going to be given away to another family. Mm-hmm. So all of this investment is going into another family, right? Right. Um, think about this in a subsistence economy. So what, of course, is her number one gift that she brings to the society? And the answer is her fertility, right. her ability produce additional humans. So what happens if like the young man, she's irresponsible with that gift? What if she's promiscuous and she goes out and she gets herself pregnant without a husband and a patriarchal patrilineal and patrilocal husband uh, uh, society? What will happen to that child that she produces is that the home family is going to have to raise that child. Hmm. And the whole family is going to have to raise a child that comes to them with no inheritance. Wow. So that additional child brings nothing and takes everything. And then on top of that, can you marry off a single mother in a tribal society? Right. And the answer is no. So from this point onward, she has saddled her family with another mouth to feed. She has saddled her family with her uh, eternal presence because they're never going to be right. able to make her off. And she has just cost her family the resources that it takes to provide for two additional humans that can give that family nothing. Wow. So, so the, in this situation, then you enter into the, the way then that um, sexual violence is committed against women in this environment where mm-hmm. you have this, um, patriarchal society, this subsistence economy, and this kind of sets the, the boundaries for like what this means when crimes are committed. But a lot of times uh, it gets, a, there's a lot of criticism about like, I, I think even um, in Deuteronomy 22, you have like, people are, yes. are critical of that. This, these are the passages that people use to say that God must hate women. God hates women. But but yeah. you kind of show, it seems, it seems what I've heard you make uh, make this point in a variety of ways that this code, this legal system, com- compared to the society that it was in, ha- had mm-hmm. guardrails and, and a gracious nature that, unless we understand this context, which you just so well put for us, we can't understand actually how good Israelite women had it. Is that right? Or- hmm. Yeah. Um, and let me say that Israelite women are living a rough life. Right. But Israelite men, are living a rough life. Um, this is a world where poverty, disease, starvation were right around the corner for everyone. So um, the tribal system is designed to protect um, and to keep, uh, as you said, to keep guardrails on a society so that no one runs off the highway. So let's jump into this. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, 22, excuse me. Okay. And uh, the, par- the paragraph we're so interested in is verses 23 through um, 29, 23 through 29. 
And as is very common with uh, biblical legal codes, this is not the be-all and end-all of, of laws about women and sexuality. They're scattered all over the law codes. And part of that is because this is an oral culture. Um, right. They don't they don't have encyclopedias written up in the, po- the local library. So uh, these laws are going to get tagged multiple times as we move through the law codes. And your readers need to realize that there are at least three law codes in the Old Testament. One is called the Book of the Covenant. This is Exodus chapter 19 through 23. Okay. The other is the Book of Leviticus, which is designed by priests for mm-hmm. priests. And the last one is the book of Deuteronomy and specifically chapters 12 to 26, which is um, much more um, a, a law designed for the general populace or a law code, let me say it this way, that is designed to be read by the general populace. Okay. So um, this been something that Ezra and Nehemiah 8, this is what Ezra might have read portions like this. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Ezra himself was a priest, so he would have been reading Leviticus as well. But Leviticus just has some very specialized law that um, only the priesthood would understand and be able to apply. Okay. And um, let me just say as an aside as well, especially as we talk about rape, which is this whole epidemic crime in our society, our very liberated, bureaucratic, egalitarian society has um, a ridiculous uh, number of of traumatic rapes on a daily basis. Um, The book of Leviticus, one of the the guardrails it sets, which if only we could get this down in American society, we would eliminate um, the bulk of the sexual violence in our world. Interesting. Leviticus makes incest a capital crime. Wow. Period. A child who is assaulted by a relative that one out of every four women in our current society who has been molested by an uncle, a father, a stepfather, a boyfriend, that man dies Wow! on the spot. No questions asked. He's and, done. And we're doing this, this, we're recording this on September 11th. And, uh, just yesterday, oh, Netflix yes. came out with uh, Cuties, right? This whole and um, our, my Netflix uh, membership is gone now. I mean, and I know that's not exactly right. the same thing, but I mean <laughs> the violation of the the, the duty of parents um, in this role, and I, certainly mm-hmm. that's celebrated in that. And that's uh, sorry, I, I don't mean this. So incest is a capital offense in in, in, in Jewish culture. Done. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Any any patriarch who has got a great deal of societal power, any patriarch who touches his daughter, mm-hmm. his niece, his son's wife, um, yeah, done. Wow. <laughs> so if we just got those guardrails on our society, um, among your listeners and the Me Too movement and the reality of the trauma and shame in our society that has been caused by this grossly irresponsible and selfish behavior. Oh my gosh, that one's done. Okay, but Deuteronomy, the section we're looking at is is not talking about incest. It's talking about an array of violations and it includes um, adultery, seduction, and rape. So these are the three issues that are addressed in our paragraph. 
And hearkening back to the earlier part of our conversation and the gift that a young woman brings to her society and the ideas of a tribal society where a woman's career path was building a family. Yeah. Now, that's that's a special jump for us as well. This is a career path. This is not simply a romance chemistry and do I have time or am I interested in having children? This is a career. Right. So just like I went to 12 years of schooling to get, you know, the title PhD in doctor and <clears throat> I made very strategic choices about what institutions I aligned myself with, right. where I built my professional network, which reference letters I asked for, which publications I said yes to and which I said no to. All of these things are working in the mind of both the young woman and most importantly, her father. Okay. Because her father is responsible to place her in her career path. So this is, this is how this society works. <clears throat> and can I say that arranged marriages are still functioning all right. over this planet? Yes. Yeah. And um, among especially my friends in the uh, Indian community, right, both right. American, I'm talking India in India. Oh, I got you. Yeah, um, yeah. Both, both who are American citizens, those who have family members in the States and family members still back in India, and those who are all still back in India, we're still arranging marriages. Right. And can I tell you, the young adults that I know are really grateful that they're still. I've had that experience too. And my friend, uh, Charles Chow from the Northeast, Northeast India, um, the Mizu uh, Mm -hmm. group, he, uh, the the Savage Army has five territories in India. It's much larger as far as the members of the church in India than in the United States. Um, I, he and I were both mystified when we first talked about this. Like I was mystified with him and he was mystified with me. He's like, why wouldn't I want what my family wants from me? Right. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but I've, I've had that experience too. And it, it's alive in other parts of the world too. Absolutely. In fact, I know a lot of young adults who came to the States to go to school, told their parents, hey, I'm done with all that old fashioned stuff. I'm going to pick my own spouse. And then about five years into the dating scene, they're like, mom, <laughs> dad, can you find me a decent guy? Cause I'm not doing so well. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So, um, my, um, my good friends within this community, they look at me and they say, Oh my gosh, you go to such ridiculous links to get your kid into the right college, but you do nothing to help them with the most important decision of their life. Wow. What's wrong with you? And then as now an undergraduate teacher, I'm watching 21-year-olds choose a spouse. Yeah. <laughs> 21 so much about life and marriage who haven't <laughs> even figured out themselves yet. And they're making a decision that's going to shape their life for the next 50 years. <laughs> I feel a lot stronger about that now uh, as my kids are getting older. And I tell you what, like there still is a little bit of a tradition, at least asking the father. And all I have to say is like, you have two girls. <laughs> They're going to have a good, uh, good luck with them talking to Steve. I'm going to, I would love to see that on tape. I know. <laughs> I know. And I am so grateful that my girls actually um, have confidence in our opinion. And they're still talking to us because about these things, not yeah. that they're still, they're still talking to us, but yeah. Thanks, um, let me side all that to there. say. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. In Israel, um, and, and I detail this in the article that's coming out in Jets and, um, 
and we can talk about it further, but this decision was a family decision that you were placing your daughter in a family that you knew would take care of her, in a family that you knew she would be uh, um, compatible with, with a family that you knew would take care of her, that she had a future with. And the two families are coming together to create an alliance when a marriage is formed. And you and I are both married. We know that whole in-law thing. It's a big deal. Yes. You know, <laughs> Amen. when you're 22, 23 and, and you're madly in love, you think, oh, it doesn't matter that her entire family is crazy. Uh, yeah, it does matter. You're <laughs> <laughs> spending a lot of time with that family and uh, they have a claim to your kids. So <clears throat> in this tribal society, it was seen as an alliance. It was seen as the responsibility of the patriarch. And once the decision was made, uh, a young woman entered into a betrothal period. So during a full calendar year, it is the young man's job to come up with something called a mohar. Okay. We translate it as a bride price. Okay. And people spun off of that, the idea that he's buying this girl. And that is not accurate at all. Okay. It actually was a gift that showed that he was worthy of her. Hmm. And the mohar is presented to the patriarch, to the young woman's father, the young woman's father holds the mohar in um, in trust. And if something ever goes wrong with this marriage, if he decides to divorce her, if she winds up a young widow and there's there's no recourse, the mohar goes back to her, oh, not to the. And so it's it's kind of a trust fund um, for her for the children. And it's also a respectable gift from a respectable family to communicate to the parents of the bride, we know the value of the gift that you're giving our family. And by the way, this is still practiced all over the world. Mm -hmm. One of my students at Wesley Biblical, a young woman named Agnes Nageni, who is now Agnes Nageni Langat, um, her young man had to come up with a mohar. Wow. Uh, you know, it's still happening. So once the mohar has been paid, there is uh, a date set and a year of betrothal. During that betrothal period, this young woman is considered married in all ways except for the actual consummation of the union. When the year is up, she physically moves into her fiance's house and uh, the mohar is fully paid. Uh, the marriage ceremony is enacted. Uh, the union is consummated and everybody's hoping for babies as fast as possible. Okay, so that's how it works. So a woman has one status. She's completely single. Mm -hmm. Then she has another status. She's betrothed. And then she has a third status. She's fully married. If at any point in this process, she has sex with another man, uh, she has broken trust. Her family has broken trust. Mm. And the young man um, is... Uh, he has been defaulted. Okay, so Deuteronomy 22 is asking the question, whose crime is it? Hmm. Who's been defaulted here? So if the young girl is completely single, it makes the statement that if uh, she has sex with a young man and, and it's asking the question of consent, if she has sex with a young man and she's completely single, uh, it's asking the question, did she have sex in the city? where she could have cried out and someone would have heard her and could have come and rescued her. Okay. If so, we're going to 
but that this was a consensual tryst. And in light of that, we're going to call this seduction. And the crime, uh, the penalty for the crime is the young man who seduced her is now responsible to come up with a mohar. Okay. And he comes up priciest mohar possible. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, because the family can negotiate and can recognize. There's no that negotiation the, in this sense, though. They have to have the highest amount. Exactly. Exactly. Highest price possible. It's 50 shekels of silver. It's the actual the price of a healthy young man being dedicated to the temple. So if you want to redeem a young man from his dedication to the temple at the height of his physical maturity and the height of his his value, therefore, mm -hmm. to tribal society, it costs 50 shekels of silver. So this young woman who has been compromised, I put that in air quotes, um, that young man has to come up with 50 shekels of silver. He has to pay the mohar to the family, which rewinds her honor. He has to marry her. And here's, here's the catch. He can't ever divorce her. Wow. So, but as I say in my article, that little walkaway Joe, who was hoping for an uncomplicated uh, a joyride, uh -uh. <laughs> so you're in, you're in forever. Wow. And you can't walk away. Now, there are too many Bibles out there that translate the word there for um, uh, taking this young woman they translate it as raped that young woman. Mm. And I go to great lengths to demonstrate linguistically that that is not the case. So we're looking at verse 28. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he's violated her. He cannot divorce her all the, his days. Wow. Now, we in our American translations, right. we translate he rapes yeah, her. That's what I have. And he pay, and he pays a penalty. Wow. Well, that's not on here. What he's done is he has taken her, which means he's had sex with her. Right. He has not violently. There's a violent adverb in the previous verses. There's no violence here. And it's not a penalty. He's paying, well, it is a penalty, but he's paying the bride price. He has to marry the girl. Yeah, wow. So one gig is it tells the young men, hey, I, I don't care if you've got great hair and you're totally charming and you're driving a brand new 2020 loaded, uh, you know, uh, lifted pickup truck. And you can get any girl in the world in the backseat of that car. Um, the Say first it. time we can. You're married, dude. Right. You're done. Wow. Um, that system now so is interesting. You're, I, I know you're on the NIV translation committee uh, or something. You have to, yeah, so maybe you can I get know. that corrected next time around. <laughs> not only not only maybe, but that proposal is going forward to the translation committee this year. All right. Way yeah. to go. Yeah. So it's going forward this year. So, and um, my... My committee mates, I think, will be fully supportive. Great, um, great. It's one of those things that, that slipped through the track cracks. Okay, so I know we're running out of time. That's yeah. the seduction. Then there's a rape law. And the rape law um, is uh, right here in um, verse 25. So let's look at this one. Um, but if in the field, the man finds the girl who is engaged. 
Okay, so she's betrothed. She belongs to somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He finds feel, and the man forces her. Right. And he lies with her. Okay. There's a violent term, and that violent term actually shows up in Judges 19, um, which is uh, the rape of the concubine, and it shows up in the story of Tamar. Right. Forces her, and he lies with her. Then only the man who lies with her dies. Wow. Okay. Not, not, it's this, a, yeah, keep going. I'll, I, I, yeah. This law comes on the heels. Maybe I should have done it this way. If we look at verses 23 and 24, it's the law of a betrothed young woman having sex with a man in the city. And that's a law about adultery now because she's betrothed. Mm-hmm. She belongs to someone else. The date's been set. Another family is waiting for her. She's betrayed her father, she's betrayed her fiancé, and she's betrayed her fiancé's father. Mm -hmm. So if she lies with a man, then she's an adulteress, the man is an adulteress, both die. It's a a capital crime. So that's 23 and 24. But now the text circles back around and says, okay, she's betrothed, but she has sex in the field. Okay. The man forces her and lies with her, then only the man shall die. Now translate that into Pakistan right now. Wow. Into a moment. Yeah. She's betrothed. She's engaged. And she winds up having being forced into a sexual encounter in the field. Verse 26. You shall do nothing to the girl. Wow. Tell that to the honor crimes that are going on in the fundamentalist Muslim communities right now. You shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in that girl worthy of death. Wow. For just man rises up against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. So here, our, our, our legislator in 1200 BC is recognizing that rape is a violent crime. Wow. Wasn't because she was dressed seductively. Right, not wasn't blaming because the woman. she was at night. She wasn't asking for it, right? which we see in the newspapers and we, you know, we hear this constantly in our own chatter about rape crimes. No, she was in the field. There was no one to help her. This is a violent crime. Verse 27, when he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Hmm. How does the legislator know that she cried out? He doesn't know because he wasn't in the He is assuming that this girl is innocent until she's proven guilty. And on top of that, this girl is expected to report, translate into the 21st century frat crime, right? She's expected to report. She is assumed innocent. And she's believed. Yeah. And she'll be believed. He's the one who executed, not her. And her reputation is intact. Wow. Yeah. So this law, I argue, did more to protect young women in a tribal society. Okay, I recognize she doesn't have full sexual agency. I recognize she doesn't get to choose her husband. I recognize this is an arranged marriage. I recognize all of those things. This is a different kind of culture. But in that culture, they're protecting their women. Hmm. And actually, the concluding sentence of my article, and um, again, I know we're at the end of our time, the concluding sentence of my article yeah. is when I take all of these things into account as a woman, yes. 
you know, as a woman who's been harassed on construction sites, as a woman who had a college prof proposition me, um, as a woman who um, is scared to death to um, go into the garage at, at nine o'clock at night, I, I know of what I speak. Yeah. I actually think that my 18-year-old daughter would be safer in the hill country of Iron Age Israel than she will be attempting to cross the quad at UCLA after dark. Oh my goodness. Wow. What I mean, this is a wild statement. Even we're crossing cultures in thousands of years, you're saying that you have we'd have more confidence in the hill country of Israel than uh, UCLA with the, it's, it, uh, I would love, I mean, this, the cult, the frat culture and all that goes on there, man, it's so troubling. Um, but, but you're, you're suggesting that even the Deuteronomic laws that were in place, um, provided more protection and maybe even provided, would you even say more dignity to women? Yeah, I would say more dignity. Now, granted, adultery in their world's a capital crime. Right. Um, it is. And in our world, we can't even think about that. <clears throat> but uh, you don't you don't mess with you don't mess with a single girl in Israel. You don't touch anybody else's daughter. You don't touch anybody else's wife. Hmm. And you certainly don't touch any member of your own household. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing this. I, I, I wonder if this isn't completely related, but I think something that, and I think we can do this quickly. Um, one of the things that um, comes up sometimes is the, the nature of multiple wives. I, I read uh, Leon Cass's book on uh, on Genesis, the beginning of wisdom, and that helped me. But could you help set that? Like, like I think a lot of people when they read this these passages, that the idea of there being multiple wives throughout the Old Testament that's a hard one. What's your thumbnail answer of that for that question and that challenge? Yeah. Well, my thumbnail answer is I, I have trouble with it too. I don't think it is God's design and creation, and I think Jesus brings our attention back to that. Yes. Um, my the anthropologist in me says it was an economic necessity. Right. Um, as we look at the history of human civilization, women survive at every stage of their developmental existence at a higher rate than men do. There are more women than there are men, hmm. and if uh, women are going to wind up in a household protected, fed, and able to pursue their career path of building a family, um, polygamy becomes uh, an, an economic convenience. Right. Um, we know from the stories of the patriarchs that these polygamous families were rife with dysfunction. This is a very difficult way to live. Right. Um, but uh, it. Uh, it functioned. Um, yeah, it right. functioned. Thank you for giving that me a short answer to that. I, I remember. Um, yeah. I uh, after you left Asbury Seminary, I I was uh, had multiple classes with uh, Dr. Bill Arnold, and he always said, uh, "Oh yeah, if, if he would go in." Um, Whenever he's asked to preach somewhere, he doesn't want them to say from the pulpit as they introduce him that he's an Old Testament scholar because he'll never get out of the building. He'll have all these type of questions for forever. <laughs> like, oh, I do, don't, don't uh, say I'm an Old Testament scholar. You'll get get all sorts of uh, genocide questions and polygamy questions. So, but uh, I appreciate you, you handling that and taking that on. Well, I, I know you've done a few uh, occasional Salvation Army events here and there, but um, I, I, yes. I can't help but uh, hope that as people 
people hear this and maybe even Google you and, and, and read your books that um, you and Steve too could have an impact on the Salvation Army. Of course, on our tradition from the from our inception, William and Catherine Booth had women in ministry and uh, I, mm, I would yes. love love to see you know your scholarship have deeper impact in the Salvation Army. Because I say that because Abby and I have benefited so much from the work that you've done. So thank you for taking time to to go and spend time in Israel and study this culture and help us understand the revelation of the triune God so clearly. And um, mm-hmm. you and Steve are a blessing to me and Abby. Oh, Andy, thank you so much. And I'm so grateful to have been a blessing. And um, go Army. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a Navy but go army. Yeah. You guys are doing amazing things. And, um, and I have such profound respect for the work that you do. So anything I can do to, to speed you on your way, I'm eager to do it. Where so can people look up? Me. Are you, uh, where can people look you up as a Westmont college? Is that the pl- best place to go or like yeah, on Twitter? I have a, a, yeah, I have a faculty page at Westmont where not right now because COVID is wreaking havoc, but my speaking schedule is usually on my faculty page. Okay. Um, Facebook person, I'm just starting to move into Instagram. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm not great at social media, um, but you can definitely find me through Westmont College. So find me there and send us your freshmen too. Oh, there you go. All right. A, l- a little advertisement yeah. for Westmont. Sounds good. Well, Sandy, yeah. thank you so much for your time. God bless you. God bless you too. Next week on the podcast, we have John Lee from the Richards Group. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.